All right, brothers and sisters, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, let me uh, let me invite you to turn once again to John 15, and I'm going to take us through the last portion of this chapter and just a little bit into John 16 because it goes along uh, with the end of John 15. Now, John 15 has been great as we looked at abiding in Christ and as we looked at uh, fruit bearing, but I will tell you uh, that we are going to take a darker turn in John 15 this morning. Uh, a stark contrast is set before us. Last week, we, uh, we saw the centrality of Jesus and how that provides the molten core that is to inflame our love, not only for him, but also our love for one another. But this week, we turn from that love to hate and hostility, or, or it's probably better to say it this way. It's probably better to say that Jesus turns his disciples and along with them, he turns us to the inescapable reality of hate and hostility for those who are his friends. It's good news to be his friends, but we need to see clearly what that means. The world hates you. That's what Jesus is going to tell us this morning. So here, this portion of the word of God, I'll begin at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let's pray. Lord, uh, these are weighty and difficult words, uh, dark words for us to hear. And we pray that you would help us as we hear them, to hear them with the intent with which you spoke them, to then have courage and to be able to love our enemies and to love those who persecute us, even as you have commanded us to do. Lord, help us to understand this well then today in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when I was a kid, 
we took several trips as a family with groups of friends. They were, they were tubing trips, inner tubing trips, old truck inner tubes. And we would float together down the Gunpowder River in Maryland. They were sweet times. You know, one of the, one of the tubes would have food and a cooler in it. And you would just float along the river and you'd, uh, you'd, you'd look at things, you'd chat with one another. It was easy. It was sweet. It was going with the flow. Jesus says, if you are going to be friends with me, you need to understand up front and clearly that you are not on an inner tube floating down the river with the current of the world. You are going against the flow of the world. If you expect, if we expect the world to love us because Jesus loves us well then we need to recalibrate our expectations and that's what jesus is doing for the disciples here uh, d.a carson is a writer i've enjoyed in working through uh, john i'm going to quote him actually several times in this sermon this morning he puts it simply by saying this if the union of believers with jesus constitutes a community of love that's what we saw last week just above this section that community stands over against the world okay you've, you've got two communities that are described a community of love that stands against the world that hates them i think most of us i, I suspect this is true and just kind of an obvious thing to say i think most of us would enjoy being liked we, we would like to be liked we would prefer to be liked rather than hated but jesus says the world hates you now that's a you can't say it more strongly than that let it sink in for a moment the world hates you why do we need to know this well that's i think i think that's a the huge question of this why do we need to know this but in order to get to it and we'll get to it right at the end of the sermon let's ask a couple of other questions that lead up to that final one and the first question that I think begs uh, answering as we look at this text is what, what's the world or who is the world? What is being spoken of here? Who hates us exactly is what we want to ask here. Of course, world is a fairly comprehensive term and it can be used in any number of ways. And in fact, it's used in a variety of ways in the Gospel of John itself. It's used five times in verse 19. So you know when you when you repeat a word like that you're obviously trying to emphasize what is being said and uh, let me just quote again from carson in terms of what is the world he defines the world as the created moral order in active rebellion against god the created moral order in active rebellion against god i, I appreciate that but i like the way that jesus in particular here personalizes this personalizes the idea of the created moral order and makes it very clear by saying that there are in essence two groups of people there are those who are of the world and those who are not of the world that's it those who are of the world and not of the world and the delineation between the two is not drawn by some innate quality of the two groups the line instead is drawn by the choosing okay the, the the two groups didn't say all right let's break out into teams 
and you know you you be on the you be on the good team and you be on the bad team. No, no, everybody belonged to one group, and the only reason that there is a group of those who are not of the world is because of the choosing, the choosing that is done by Jesus in verse 19. He says, I chose you out of the world. And so whatever we wanna say about the world, whatever we wanna think about the world, what we have to realize and appreciate because it makes a really big difference in terms of the disposition of our heart, the way we view ourselves, the way we view our neighbors, we have to understand that we were part of the world until we were chosen out of it, or to put it in the language from last week, until we were friended by Jesus, we were part of that rebellious created moral order. And if we if we wonder, you know, okay, well, well what is the world like of, of various passages that we could go to, sticking in John, John 3.19, you don't have to turn to it, I'll just read for you uh, right now. John 3.19 says this, Jesus, we know John 3.16, but right afterwards, Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. It's, it's about people. And, and we can say it this way, the essential quality then of the world, and while this could be said in a number of ways, the essential quality is that the world loves darkness and it hates light. So, so, so with that understanding of the world, we might still ask the question, all right, I, I get that. I get that the world is hostile, but why, why would the world actually hate a, a basically nice person like you? You know, you, you, you're, you're called from the Lord, and I trust that we do the best to do it, is to love your fellow man, your fellow woman, to do good, to be kind, to love our neighbor. Why, why hate is the response? Why is hate the response to do that? Now, we could, we could examine a number of probably scriptures and reasons why from a human perspective, from, from, a, from a perspective of us being the people of God in this world, why would the world hate us? What is it about us that they hate? But instead of doing that here, Jesus instead roots the hate in a different place. He, he roots the hate not in us, but rather the hate for us is rooted actually in hate for Jesus himself. It is our, it's our affiliation. It is our friendship with Jesus that is the reason that they hate us. In the saints, his presence and his friendship, and this was from Calvin last week, it inflames love. Okay, In, in the saints, in those who are chosen, it inflames love. In the world, his presence, his works, his words, they inflame hatred instead. So for one group, it inflames love. For the other group, it inflames hatred. Jesus puts it this way in uh, John 7, 7. He says, the world cannot hate you. Now that's kind of interesting. I'm sorry, let me just interrupt it. The world cannot hate you, Jesus says. It's, it's interesting because here he says the world hates you. And, and in John 7, he's trying to say, the, the origin isn't that it hates you. It hates him, it hates me, is 
The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world hates Jesus because he, as the light, testifies to the evil of the darkness that characterizes the world. The hate then comes to us. That hate is an overflow of the hatred of Christ, which, as Jesus makes clear likewise in this passage, is ultimately not just a hatred of Jesus himself, but it's a hatred of his Father as well. Jesus has come into the world, and he has made the rejection that the world has of the purposes of his Father, he has in fact made it so much worse by his presence here. Here's, here's what he means. I trust that all of us understand that when we read the words in 22, verse 22 and verse 24, that Jesus is not speaking in an absolute sense when he says, had I not come into the world, they would not be guilty of sin. Of course, there would have been sin uh, prior to his coming into the world. But what he is saying is that guilt is commensurate to the degree of revelation. And now that he has come into the world in his person, with his words, with his works, to reject him is to exacerbate, to make worse in every way, the sin and the judgment that comes along with it. Uh, it it's similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Again, you can look it up later, verses 20 through 24. I'll read a portion of it for you just to show the comparison between the two. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Why more bearable for them on the day of judgment? Because they didn't receive the revelation where the, where the cities were in which he did his mighty works. Jesus is saying that of the world that they have, they've, they've heard the words that he has spoken. They've, they've seen the works that he's done. And, and in one sense, on one level, they actually know who he is. But in the, in the deepest, inmost sense, they actually haven't heard, they haven't seen, and they haven't known who he is. But their deafness, their blindness, and their ignorance is, in fact, willful, and it is culpable. So that, as Jesus is saying, their hatred is without excuse. But now they have no excuse for their sins. Verse 22. Their hatred is without excuse. They are culpable. They are responsible for the hatred. And in the courts of heaven, not only is it without excuse, it is without a cause. There is no cause behind it that is any kind of a just cause. Jesus hasn't provoked in some way by himself their hatred. Instead, the hatred flows out of them because of the goodness and the light and the holiness that is found in him. It is an unprovoked hatred, and it is a hatred that is laser-focused on 
the person of Jesus. It's laser focused on him, but the intent with is is to focus on Jesus with all of the collateral damage that it can take in, especially upon those who bear his name. Carson again puts it this way. Former rebels who have been by the grace of the king won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. And that's it, they're against the king. But for the former rebels who by the grace of the king have now become part of the friendship of the king, not popular, not a popular place. And, and, and as we continue on, we go, okay, all right, all right, so what about this hate? What is this hate like? What is, what is Jesus talking about? I think we've got to acknowledge a few things about the hate itself so that we understand it. We might not feel that the world hates us all the time. I trust we don't feel that all the time. Uh, the hate can be, in terms of its expression, it can come to us in different degrees. It can be, for example, more or less intense. Throughout the history of the church, the early church in biblical history, uh, and then subsequent to that, there have been periods in which the church has enjoyed a great deal of peace and other periods that have been times of intense persecution. The hatred is there. Sometimes it simmers and you don't realize it. And other times it boils over into the world. The hatred, likewise, can be subtle or overt. Sometimes you can label it and see it clearly and plain as day. Other times, it's less clear, but it is there nonetheless. And it can be with greater uh, or lesser degrees of awareness, degrees of cognizance on the part of the perpetrator, on the part of the person who hates. And that's what Jesus says here. He talks about this awareness. Uh, they'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. See, there's a, there's a, a it's culpable, but there's an ignorance that exists there. Some people may be aware they're specifically persecuting and hating the church. Other people may think that in so doing, they're actually doing a good thing. Uh, for example, uh, Paul. Paul is this person's well, right? As well, he says, right, as to, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Or uh, think of Jesus. When, when Jesus is being nailed to the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Now, on one level, they knew exactly what they were doing. But Jesus says, listen, they're culpable, they're responsible, but I'm asking forgiveness because there's a level of ignorance in what they are doing here. But whatever, whether it is less intense, subtle, or with ignorance, Jesus does not excuse it. He exposes it. He says clearly that the root of all of this is hate for him. We don't always see it. People don't always realize it. <coughs> Excuse me. But nevertheless, the hatred is there. And when you peel back everything else, when you peel back the common grace, and we stand before the Lord, it will be as plain as can be. So why do we need to know this? Why, why is he telling them this? It's, it's a dark word. It's, a, it's, to be sure, a difficult word. I'm going to give you three reasons that I think come from the text this morning about why he 
is saying this. The first is more of a, a global perspective than uh, looking at one verse in particular. I think what Jesus is saying is this, if you are considering coming to the faith, coming to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him, and particularly if you are like the 11 men who are around Jesus at this point, if you are particularly sensing that you have been called into the ministry, don't come. Don't come to Jesus, don't come into the ministry thinking that this is the way of the easy life in the world, that this is the way to float downstream on an inner tube in ease with a cooler of nice drinks floating beside you. Following Jesus costs. Now, it brings rest for the soul, and that's eternally valuable and presently valuable, but it engenders hatred from the world. And so Jesus wants that known up front. If you're considering it, I don't want this to catch you by surprise. Secondly, don't let hatred, hostility, persecution catch you off guard. That seems to be a primary message that Jesus is saying here. As awful as the hatred is, it has been explained by Jesus, foretold by Jesus. And as Jesus himself says in verse 25, it's this hatred exists that the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. It's not just that Jesus said they would hate, it's that the word predicted that they would hate. Things aren't different. Things haven't spun out of control. This is exactly what the word said it would be like, that the world would hate. And so it seems that Jesus is saying that the simple proverb, forewarned is forearmed. Right? Forewarned is forearmed. My brothers, my friends, I am forewarning you that the world is going to hate you and therefore have no starry-eyed optimism about being loved as a Christian by the world. Have no starry-eyed optimism about transforming the world. It is set in its rebellion against God, and you can't fix it. Men have sought out evil devices, though created by God upright, and it will not be fixed. The world will persist in its hatred, except for those who have heard the witness that comes from the mouth of the apostles, that is born in the heart by the Holy Spirit, and have been chosen out of the world by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, don't be surprised when they hate you. Don't be discouraged when they hate you. And most of all, uh, verse 1 of chapter 16, don't abandon the faith. Don't abandon the faith because people hate you. It's hard to have people hate you, but Jesus has told us, expect it. The third and final takeaway then is this. In the midst of being hated, you will not be alone. In the midst of the hostility, you will not stand alone. Do you remember, uh, uh, years ago now, I preached on Joshua, and as we finished the book of Joshua, we saw that at the end of the book, Joshua pushes up the stone underneath of the terebinth tree, and he calls it the stone of testimony against us. The stone of testimony. It's, it's the stone of witness about what has been said that day. 
Well, Jesus here doesn't set up a stone of witness at the end of his life. Instead, he says, I am sending you the helper, the spirit of truth. And what he does is bears witness about me. He joins my witness. We read earlier that Jesus testifies to the world that their works are evil. If we went down a little bit further in uh, John 16, verse 8, when he comes, that is the spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. You see, the spirit will join the testimony of Jesus in convicting the world of sin in showing the world the reality of their hatred of the one who has come from the Father. But it's not just a convicting message from the Spirit. It is, in fact, the same message from, Je from, from Jesus. To those who are perishing, it is a message of destruction. But to those who have been appointed to everlasting life, they hear the words and they embrace the words of Christ and eternal life by his grace. And not only that, but the spirit, if you wanna use back in Joshua language, the spirit will empower living stones so that not only is the spirit bearing witness, but the apostles themselves and we who follow them continue to bear witness in this world as well, in the midst of a world of hate, bearing witness to the one who calls to us in love. So, the call here in this passage isn't to go with the flow of the world. It is not to cower, to cave, to capitulate. The call is to continue. Paul put it this way when he was writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed. In full awareness of the hatred then, here's the call, continue to abide in Jesus. Continue to love one another. Continue along with that to love your enemies and those who persecute you. Continue to bear fruit and continue to bear witness. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. That's why he's giving us these words so that we will continue in him. Let's pray. Lord, this is hard for us to hear. It's hard for our hearts to hear. It's hard for us to process. We thank you for your sovereign grace at work in our lives that has called us out of the world and chosen us out of the world. And as prayed earlier, we pray again, continue the good work, Spirit of God. Continue the good work as you speak through us, the men and women of this world, calling them to faith in Jesus Christ, convicting them concerning sin and judgment, but calling them into the light by the grace of Jesus Christ. Without that calling, we too would have been lost and amongst those who are perishing. We thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.